because here comes player three with the 16-bit chair. Welcome to season six where we're phoning it in. You don't think critically and then put a Pop-Tart into your body. I am highly caffeinated and minorly concussed. Aruga, aruga. What came first, the love sack or the gravity gun? It's my turn to do a sin with Sonic. This is for the freaks. <laughs> Too much piss. That's the kind of bad decisions we like to hear about. Let me a sleepy ass bat. How much shrimp can you fit in your mortal body? You told me you guys would be cool. That's season six intro material right there. Hello and welcome to Debate This, the show where no one is right, but someone is definitely wrong. In this show, we take time out of our busy adult lives to talk about comic books, video games, and how even at nearly 30 years old, I will still save writing my Rilke reports until the very last minute. Seems like a, like a call out for yourself here. You know what's different? Well, you know what's different between then and now, though, Matt? Is well, now you know that that is an actual thing. There is something mm-hmm. wrong with your brain that makes you do that. It's yes. true. So that's yeah. progress. That habit has been diagnosed uh, <laughs> and is at least mildly medicated. This yeah. is absolutely a self-own, and I wanted to own up to this up front. Um, the topic of today's flavor text is the console wars, which I will get into in a scripted introduction in a minute, which there is a book about the console wars that I have had for two years and have been saying, oh. I'm going to read that. And doing this flavor text was supposed to be my excuse to read that book. Did I read that book? No, I did not. I read some of that book, uh, but I did not finish it yet. And I felt the need to dunk on myself in this way before we got started. If if it's any consolation, Matt, I did not watch a thousand episodes of One Piece. (laughs) Yeah, man. I mean, who's among us, right? (laughs) I played all eight Halo games. (laughs) <laughs> yeah todd played all eight halo games and i i read all of animorphs and played played yeah. 15 years of magic but yeah well i've, I've done a bunch of the other things whatever <laughs> anyway i have gathered us here today i wanted to point out the other difference between um previous book reports and these book reports is you chose this the other book reports were assigned to you and and you chose this Well, technically, I didn't choose this. One of our patrons commissioned it because I have gathered us here today for another flavor text. Now, recently, we flavored with power, but now it's time to flavor for war. Patron and Discord member mgrum54 has commissioned me to talk all about the console wars, and oh, baby, am I excited. If you haven't been part of the DT exclamation point family for long, you may be unfamiliar with my lifelong obsession with retro gaming culture. Of course, I spew about it often enough on this podcast, but it's pretty rare someone gives me an amount of money to force my three friends to spend hours listening to me attentively. If this is your first flavor text with us, these episodes are our Patreon commission book reports on a topic of your choosing. Commissions are currently closed, but will be reopening exclusive to our patrons soon. If you would like more info about that, head on over to patreon.com slash debate this cast. Um, I can't wait until one of our patrons just makes us do a whole ass book report and <laughs> just has the gall to say, I commissioned Jack London's hatchet. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, we're throwing the term book report around a lot. Right. Yeah. This is the first one I'm aware of that's like a book. <laughs> no, okay. We did The Sandman, which is a book. 
Uh, also, we did Animorphs. 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 Books. That was yeah. a series of books. This is the first one that's like yeah. a book, a book like, ass book. Like, but I'm I'm talking there about there are no like, pictures. Like, if I were a patron, I would be like, "All right, fuckers, Heart of Darkness, <laughs> go." <laughs> <laughs> well, today we are not here to talk about Heart of Darkness. We are here to talk about the console wars, and I will disprove what Kyle just said. What is the console wars? You may ask. Well, they are a lot of things. They're a book. They're a movie. They're a way of life. Friends, of the ma- friends we made along the way. <laughs> Are they? They're the journey. Are the console wars in the room with us right now, Matt? But most importantly, <laughs> they are a moment in time that runs approximately from 1983 to 1995. Well, that's a lot of good, a lot of good friends in the console wars, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's there. Okay, there is a long list of war puns in this flavor text. So we'll get there anyway. <laughs> the day is young. No, we're going to get them all out now. <laughs> That's what I'll be covering today after a little bit of pre-83 talk. We'll round out this show by talking about Console War 2, Electric Boogaloo, and the current state of this event that ended nearly 30 years ago. But we'll get there. First, please allow me to introduce players 2, 3, and 4 to you today. Remembering the first political division of their consumeristic minds are Andrew Vetrix Henderson, Todd Bally Astrocade Thomas, and Kyle Emerson Arcadia 2001 Harper. Emerson Arcadia uh, 2001 is my favorite prog rock band. I was going to say favorite Radiohead album, but that's the same. That's the Um, same joke. Vectrex is my favorite herpes medication. (laughs) Fun fact, I almost bought a Vectrex yesterday. I was hand on the trigger of purchasing a Vectrex from a store here in Columbus yesterday when I decided that I didn't need a Vectrex. But does anybody need a Vectrex? I have a question. Yes. Is it what is a Vectrex? (laughs) No, that's an old console. This it's slightly related, but different. Um, Five Nights at Freddy's. The bite of eighty blank. Eighty three. Well, well, Kyle. It's eighty seven. It could be eighty three. It could be eighty seven. Oh, okay. There are two different bites. For a flavor right. text, you guys hated. You remember a lot of that. I really, I, I secretly, I really do enjoy Markiplier's content, and I watch everything he does with Five Nights because that's the only way I'll consume that media. And he makes fun of it all the time. He'll go. So, so the bite of eighty seven. Is it the Buddy 83? Is it the lore? The lore? My new headcanon then is that uh, Five Nights at Freddy is an extended console wars metaphor. Fair. Good. So by the end of researching this today, there was a brief... I mean, I, I of course made this connection because I say 1983 a lot in these notes. And I was like, is there a chance that <laughs> Scott Cawthon just had a lot to say about the console wars and the crash of video games? Is it possible? I don't think so. But um, listeners, head on over to patreon.com slash debate this cast to make great. Matt figure that out for real. Yeah. With the right amount of sleep deprivation and caffeine, I could probably square that circle. But that is not what we are here to do today. Today, we are here to talk about the console wars. And as these things always go, I would like to ask you guys what you know about the console wars before we get started. And 
I would also like you to declare your allegiances up front. Were you a Sega kid or a Nintendo kid and why? Um, I'll start and say I had this all wrong. I thought we were going to talk about Sony versus uh, Microsoft today. Um, so uh, strike one for me. Um, as far as if I was a Sega kid or a Nintendo kid, I was both. We had a NES and then we had a Game Gear and then we got and then we got Game Boy Colors and then I was a Nintendo af- kid after that. But um weirdly during the time we're talking about or close to the time we're talking about, I had both. Uh Matt, to answer your question, how much do you know? I know wholeheartedly that Genesis does what Nintendo don't. Hey, you said uh, the thing. He uh, said, said the, the thing. thing. Uh, and I very much was in the don't category, i.e. I was a Nintendo boy. And I was on the front lines of Team Nintendo <laughs> through past the console wars to the the Cold Wars of early 2000s with the GameCube v. Uh, Microsoft Xbox. Yeah, I will say that when I think of the console war- wars, the first thing I think of are the Cold Wars that Andrew is just referring to. I do think... Um, like Kyle said, I think of the Xbox, PlayStation, GameCube era. Um, but I was firmly in between the Nintendo Sega uh, competition. When you have a family riddled with divorce, what you have is two Christmases. <laughs> and so um, in one home, I had a Super Nintendo and in the other home, I had a Sega. Uh, so I was living there uh, enjoying the the major classics on both. And I will say that I think I got more out of Super Nintendo. Um, Some of my just favorite games of all time came from Super Nintendo. So that's probably where my my allegiance lay. However, the the Sonic, Sonic 2, Sonic 3, and then the Sonic and Knuckles cartridge revolutionary. What what you're saying, Todd, is children from broken homes do what children from stable (laughs) housing units don't. (laughs) I, oh, that's I feel good. like that's if I had enough knuckles, that would be a knuckle tattoo just across <laughs> across my hands. Divorce and knuckles, divorce and divorce and knuckles. <laughs> no, well, knuckles is a big fan of divorce. Broken homes make yeah. knuckles. Wow. OK, um, I was a Nintendo kid. That's neat. I obviously as as the young buck of this podcast came in a little bit late to the console wars um, and and was more of, I suppose, a Cold War era kid. Kyle, I do think it's really interesting that you bring up the Sony versus Microsoft console wars. That's what I dubbed console war Two: the electric boogaloo. And we're definitely going to talk about that at the end. But I like Cold Wars for that. that. That feels more right. Well, I will say there is a really distinctive period between the end of the Sega Nintendo console war and the beginning of the Microsoft Sony console war. And I think that is the cold war there. There is console war one. There is cold war, which is really mm. more like the Vietnam conflict. And then there is uh, console war two, which is Sony versus Microsoft. And we will get to that later in this podcast but what do you guys do you guys think that when everybody did motion controls that was the war on terror (laughs) (laughs) no that was the war on drugs right it never actually went away it only got worse there's nothing more desert storm than the xbox connect anyway um 
what we're talking about today is the period from 1983 to 1995 and the console wars between Sega and Nintendo. And this is probably, and I'm sure that somebody would debate me on this claim, but this is probably the most influential period in console gaming. A lot of the things that still govern the way consoles operate today and are marketed today and are advanced upon today come from this period of video games. And because of that, I'm going to skip through a lot of this or we would have like a seven hour podcast. Uh, so at the end, I do have some recos. If you want to get more into this, if you want to know more about the console wars, I have those recommendations at the end of this podcast. But Please don't be angry if I skip over your favorite console wars fun fact. There are so many things that happen between 83 and 95, and I'm just here to tell a story. So without <laughs> two, further two ado, bites. yeah, two bites, two whole two, bites, two whole bites. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Somebody had their kid and ate it, too. Um, <laughs> that joke had wow. layers. <laughs> wow. Anyway, let's get down to it, and let's start with a little bit of background info. To understand the console wars, you first need to understand the video game crash of 1983. Now, I know we've talked about the video game crash a little bit on the podcast in Debate This Episodes and other flavor texts. I think we talked about it a little bit in Nintendo Power. Some of the things we talked about in the Nintendo Power flavor text will probably sound kind of familiar to you in this flavor text it's a it's a nexus event in video game history it sure is it is the jfk assassination of video it game is history. the yes 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 so the video game crash of 1983 can be split up into three major factors factor number one is the golden age of arcade video games so way back in 1978 the Space Invaders game really kicked off technological advancement and growth in the arcade sector. There were more than 10,000 arcades in the U.S. by 1982. From 1980 to 1982, the number of arcades in the United States doubled in those two years alone. So that brings us to 1983 and skipping all the stuff about that golden age consumers began to shift more towards home consoles. And as consumers shifted towards home consoles, so did developers. This caused arcade games to begin to lose their novelty as nobody was really there to push the envelope anymore. Everyone was focusing on their home consoles. There was also a big scary culture of like teenage debauchery associated with arcades and the Later into the 80s, that got the less interested parents were into sending their kids to the mall with quarters. Can I say something real quick about arcades? So 10,000 seems like so many arcades. Um, I can personally think of by the time I was in high school, three arcades that yeah. I knew of. Yeah. Um, the one that was like in my local town, the one at Cedar Point. And a third one that I can't remember where I'd seen. Oh, the one at Kalahari. Like, those were like the three things I knew about. Um, but I will say a constant, not to give the parents of like the 80s any any credit here, the weirdos. 
Uh, always, always arcade weirdos. Hell, I could have been one of those arcade weirdos sometimes around the Dance Dance Revolution machine. But like, always the weirdos. To to put that 10,000 in context too, here in 2022, there are 15,000 Starbucks in North America. That does put that in that context. That really yeah. wow. does contextualize that. Holy mm-hmm. shit. Yeah. Because yeah, I can I see to, like wow, ten yeah. Starbucks from my house. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. There, there's three within a mile of me. So um, in 1982, there was a there was an arcade in every Barnes and Noble and Target. It's yeah. Wild. <laughs> <laughs> um. Weirdly, this like um, you, like the the like scary teenage debauchery was like a lingering thing for a while because that's like what yeah. Pinball Wizard is about and like. There was a pinball panic. If if you love silly panics we have in this country, pinball <laughs> is one of my favorite. Yeah. Some great news for well, you. In like early eighties in the Reagan administration was also the king of the panic, king oh, of yeah. the panic. Yeah. So that is the video, or excuse me, that is the golden age of arcade video games. The next factor into the video game crash of nineteen eighty three is the rise of personal computers. Around the early 80s, people began to ask, why buy console when computer do more? To which most people responded, because cost. And computer companies, specifically Commodore and Texas Instrument, who you might know as the guys who make calculators, said, what if less money? And people resounded, yes. Mm, That is the solution to why buy console when computer do more. I would also (laughs) say... Part of the part of the question was also like, or part of the answer was also because console easier, like computers, especially at that time, were not user friendly. <laughs> well, so right. that was the thing with. Let me make the distinction here then, and this is important between personal computers and home computers or computers in general. Personal computers okay. are not what you think of as like. You know, the 1980, you have a degree to run this or you smoke weed behind the blockbuster and understand how computers work. These are <laughs> basically that diagram is a circle. Yeah. 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 Uh huh. Um, these personal computers are really, I think, what most people would consider gaming consoles more than they would consider them to be like laptops, things like the Commodore 64 or the Apple II. Their functionality was limited compared to the bigger computers of the era, and they were designed to be computer friendly. These early 80s personal computers are when we begin to see the introduction of keyboards. And that was like that was the big thing for personal computers was like, why would you buy a video game console? You can use letters. Sure. Yeah, you can have but I've used an Apple too, and like an Atari is easier to use. It like, sure is. I will not disagree with you there. Yeah, I think there's a bar, there's a piece here too where some of these were being marketed as toys for children. Like the yes. Atari Twenty Six Hundred was marketed as a toy for children. Yes, to emulate the arcade. But some of these computers were not. They were they were made by nerds and for nerd for by adult nerds for adult nerds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, let me give you some numbers for this rise of personal computers because. What really spurred this was computer companies say, listen, if you'll buy it, if it's cheaper, we'll just make it cheaper. In 1983, Commodore cut the retail price of the Commodore 64 
down to $300, which led some in-store sale prices, or excuse me, some stores to have in-store sale prices as low as $199. That's 1983 money. For comparison, that's $896.72 and $594.82, respectively. Yeah, so still not cheap. That's a yeah. That's a PS5. I was gonna say on the <laughs> on sale, like had to hunt for the store that had it that low price of the Commodore 64 is the same as a PS5. Right now, what's crazy is that like they cut the retail price down to 300. That was from closer to 600, which would be like 1600 in today money, which oh. you know is closer to a MacBook or something like that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is effectively buying, or the argument here is you were buying a MacBook for the price of a PS5, at least in 1983 terms. Not to send us on too much of a tangent, can I ask what a TV cost in 90s dollars, 80s dollars? Um, because that's another thing is like a TV, getting a TV was, you know, privilege at the time. You, they weren't couldn't go buy one for 80 bucks at Walmart like today. They were an investment. Well, you know the classic saying, Kyle, why buy TV when computer do more? When computer <laughs> do, do more. more. Yeah. Um, I just looked. I didn't know off the top of my head. Uh, a 20-inch color TV in 1985 is going to run you about $500. So okay. there you go. And a 20-inch color TV in 1983 was about as big as a TV got, too. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure was. So that's the rise of personal computers, which I have the least amount to say on, but important to know that the pressure is there from another wing of the industry. What really killed video games and caused the crash of 83 is the quote-unquote fall of the second generation of consoles. Now, this is crazy to anybody born after the year 2000 but the playstation 5 and the xbox series x or series s or whatever the shit it's called are considered ninth generation consoles we got to go way back oh god yeah yeah first generation consoles are your pong machines second generation consoles are things like your atari 600 so let's talk about second generation consoles a little bit there were just So many of them. Everybody made a console. Your nicknames in the beginning of this episode were three second generation consoles from like not really anything or anybody that did anything. So Bally, uh, which was Todd's made the Bally Astrocade. Bally then got really into pinball machines and never really did anything else. Emerson Arcadia uh, 2001 was created by Emerson, which is a radio company. They made radios. Mm -hmm. I do think the Emerson Arcadia is one of the sleekest looking early 80s consoles, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, And then the Vectrex was only called the Vectrex, but I think was made by, oh, it's another toy company, Hasbro, maybe? I don't remember off the top of my head. Somebody would need to look at that one, but Uh, I gotcha. Smith Engineering. Oh. Hmm. So there were so many consoles. The second generation of consoles is... IMHO, the forgotten era of game consoles. And it ran from, if you ask Wikipedia, 1976 to 1992, but 
I would amend that to 76 to 83 for the purpose of our discussion today. My the, guess is why that's forgotten is like they were so many. Whereas like anyone who had a pong, if you had a pong machine, you only had a pong machine from that era. And then it like, yeah. then mm. afterwards you had, you know, the, the Genesis or the NES and like you form memories and groups around that. And like, if there's eight of these, you're forming, you're not forming a big group around the Arcadia 2001. Like I think from the docs that I've seen in my collective lifetime, the closest comparison that I've seen made is it's like, do you guys remember when all of those plug and play Jack specifics consoles, consoles, I'm using heavy air quotes there, were like a thing like QVC would be selling like 10 of these in a box for 10 yeah. for 9.99. Yeah. And they were all just like, they had the red, white and yellow composite cable or component mm-hmm. cables. You just pop and plug them right in the TV. And it was like, you can play Pac-Man. That, that is like the, and there was just like, no standardization across the board. You'd see a whole aisle of these in Target. This that was the closest comparison that that to that that this is that's ever been made to me. I was gonna ask if these this second gen functioned like the um you know the PlayStation emulator that Sony sold or the where like it's all loaded up and you just know Matt shaking his head on this audio um podcast. <laughs> yeah. So that's an important <laughs> distinction and Andrew, I think that your example is good as far of the scale of the offerings, but yeah. the scale you, and the standardization would I mean not te- not technical, okay okay for wise. sure to to make the distinction uh, and this transitions really well to my next po- bullet point here. The real defining feature of the second generation of consoles is the adoption of the microprocessor and interchangeable media. Gone were the days of buying a Pong machine. Now you buy Pong for your machine. Okay. Okay. I understand. I got I Yeah. Gotcha. So first generation consoles are really defined by they do one thing. You plug them in. You play that game. Second generation consoles, you get a little bit more play in that. All in, there's something to the tune of 15 consoles considered to be part of the second generation. The notable ones are the Fairchild Channel F, which was the first one released in 1976, the ColecoVision, the Magnavox Odyssey 2, which there's a Magnavox Odyssey from Generation 1, and then there was like a sequel to the Magnavox Odyssey that's called something else, and I don't remember. Is and that then the there's one where you just put like the film, like the the color strips on the TV. No, that's the Vectrex. That's um, the Vectrex. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, the Magnavox Odyssey Two is technically the third one. Not important. So Fairchild Channel F, ColecoVision, Magnavox Odyssey Two, the Intellivision, and the great granddaddy of them all, the Atari VCS better known as the Atari 2600. These all look like um, old answering machines for a phone. <laughs> and I know that's just because like my parents' answering machine was also from the 80s, I think. like right. It's just, it looks like anything made in the 80s. <laughs> for the the li- vision is something that you would see in the back of a CIA like van. Um, yeah, that they're like twisting the dial and pressing the numbers to tune in on surveilling someone. Absolutely. These all have absolutely been used as like props for CIA vans in movies. Definitely. Oh, yeah. 
for the listener at home, there is not an Imgur uh, link for the guys right now because they are doing some searching on their own because it's a little easier for us this time. And also, I forgot. So you will have an Imgur link, but we will not reference it in the show. Look at it to your own fruition. Anyway, so that you've got the Atari 2600. It is the best-selling Gen 2 console. It's, it's going great. Everything's cool. And then... In 1979, Activision became the first third-party publisher. And that is Activision mm. of, of Activision Blizzard Overwatch fame. Um, mm. It is the very same Activision. Now, who is Activision in 1979? Four Atari developers bailed out of Atari Company because they wanted game developers to receive the same recognition and accolades, I have in parentheses, the money, as actors, writers, directors, and musicians of the other subsidiaries under Warner Communications, who owned Atari. And they won the battle, and it's been great for video game developers and artists working on video games ever since. Especially at Activision. (laughs) Especially at Activision. Notably great at taking care of their employees, yes. Um, I have a note in here. If you guys remember in the Monster Cat flavor text, when I said all music is owned by three companies and one of them was Warner Music Group, this is the same Warner Communications who owns Warner Music Group who owned Atari at the time. Cool. Oh, yeah. And, and to keep everyone up to speed, they just bought HBO and Discovery and are the reason all of your favorite shows are gone. Like, yep, sure did. Yay, giant multinational conglomerates. So what was Activision doing as the first third-party developer? Well, up until this point, everybody made their own games. If you produced a console, you had to make the games for it. There was no standardization to the hardware. There was no open-source dev kit. Nobody was handing those things out. It was all considered to be proprietary information. So when four Atari developers fucked off and realized that they could make Atari carts on their own, they did it. And it went pretty well. And Activision made their own games on Atari carts and Atari sued them. However, they were never able to secure a restraining order and instead settled in court, which mm. meant mm. that it was pretty much cool for third party developers to yeah. do that. And Activision just had to pay royalties, but it was cool to be a third-party developer. And we have come now to my first little highlighted game. So for those listening along at home, I, instead of putting together pictures of old consoles, have gone through and pulled a bunch of different video games from notable eras and consoles that we're going to talk about today. So if you wanted to, you could, in a sense, go back in time. And play your way through the console wars. I'm not saying for sure that all these games exist on the internet through emulators with questionable legality. I'm definitely not saying I checked and I can't link them in the show notes, but I'm telling you, you could play your way through the console wars if you wanted to. And that first game (laughs) is Pitfall, published for the Atari 2600 by Activision in 1982. Have any of you guys played or seen Pitfall? I have played yeah. I've played a bit of Pitfall. Um, it's old and not as not that fun. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that's not a terrible thing to say about it. It is a late-in-life Atari 2600 game. It is among the better and more robust 2600 games. It's also sure. one that I think people, you know, and they're like, oh, Atari 2600, you had Adventure and you had Pitfall, and those are the two I remember, but there were games. <laughs> um, yeah, and like, even as a lover of retro consoles, Atari 2600 games are basic and uh, limited, and Pitfall, while it is one of the biggest and most robust games on the console looks like ass and is hard to play it it looks like like i'm guessing you would make this in like a 200 level computer science course these days like which this was new technology at the fine at the time that's not a knock against anyone involved in this but it's an old game it's from nine it's from 1979 like uh, Pitfall's 82, oh, but 82. yes, I'm sorry. you're right. I mean, you're you're right, though. Like, you could probably build Pitfall in Excel at this point uh, if you were good enough at the formulas. So now you can track all of this, the fall of the second generation, the crash of 83, the rise of what's coming next, the console wars. You can track all of it through CES and eventually through E3 which is kind of fun and also a little gross when you think about the implications of consumerism. But by 1983, there were 158 different third-party developers for the Atari VCS alone. Um, wow. wow. Yeah. In just that, a year. That's nuts. Right. So Activision were the first people to do it in 79. It was like, Late 80, early 81, that Atari settled that court case. And yeah, in, in about two or three oh, years, two years, yeah, 150 plus other third-party developers showed up just to pump out games for the Atari VCS, let alone the other 14 consoles on the market at this time. Matt, am I remembering correct, but wasn't Atari 2600 kind of considered to be like the budget version I think that budget gives the wrong connotation. I would use the yeah. word accessible. accessible. Uh, the That's Atari right. 2600 was priced in a way that more people could buy it straight mm. up. I mean, like the ColecoVision and the Intellivision were very expensive. And the Atari was not necessarily like more cheaply made, but... Um, I mean, it, it is the most popular one for a reason, and that reason is largely because people could afford it, and the games yeah. were also on the cheap because they were produced by so many people, and Atari had had games in Generation 1, so they really had the infrastructure to build out at scale, which a lot of these other consoles didn't because basically what happened was everybody saw how much Coke money Atari had and they decided they wanted that money too. Oh, it's, for sure. It's similar. It sounds very similar to like why the PS2 took off. Uh, like PS2 wasn't the cheapest, I don't think, but it definitely was the most bang for your buck. Cause it was the cheapest DVD player for a time too. Um, and then because everyone had a PS2, it was like, we make it for the PS2 first. And then if it works on the mm -hmm. others, super. Yeah, 
So I have this really fun quote uh, that I pulled. It's from an issue of Byte magazine from December of 1982. Uh, and this was a letter from the editor written by Pamela Clark, the technical editor at Byte. In 1982, few games broke new ground in either design or format. If the public really likes an idea, it is milked for all it's worth and numerous clones of a different color soon crowd the shelves. That is, until the public stops buying or something better comes along. Companies who believe that microcomputer games are the hula hoop of the 1980s only want to play quick profit. And mm. yeah, I mean, that's the sum up, man. Like, man, ev- if that just doesn't wild. sum up like all media from the 80s, like, right, uh, nothing does. Like, that was just everything. Like, Music, movies, video games, um, like. Hey guys, we have a we have a fifth Indiana Jones movie coming out in like four months. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm just I, 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 yeah. Nothing. Uh, uh, culture stagnated. I think, stagnated it's, I think, I think right. it's still like, like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. But it's it's a little different bit different now that they can't typically, depending on what the media is, churn out the carbon copy in a year's time. It now takes a little bit longer to, to percolate a game that's trying to capture the energy of a already successful game. Um, but I well, mean, Harrison, Harrison Ford will take that, that dirty Brown hat, Indiana Jones money real quick. So I am, I am, I was reminded of this when I watched Christmas vacation in the build up to the holidays this year, that there mm-hmm. are just jokes in that, that are straight copied over from vacation. Yeah. Christmas. Right. Va- and they got away with it because you couldn't watch movies at home in between the releases of oh, these. Oh, yeah. So it was just like, yeah, you liked this joke because you liked it in Vacation and you haven't watched Vacation for five years since we released it. Like, So mm-hmm. like when the 80s were a bit different when we say carbon copies because That's like fair. there just wasn't the proliferation of media at the time. But like, I understand also we're, everything old is new again and we're dealing with the same problems today. Like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If anybody wants to commission a flavor text on Reaganomics or the 24-hour news cycle, I can tell you more about why that is. Uh We don't need to do that today. Anyway, let's talk about um, the real crash. And and this is the story that people know how Atari as a company went up in flames. Pac-Man was ported to the 2600 with notably bad graphics and i would like to say that sentence again pac-man pac-man yellow circle white dot blue ghost mm-hmm. pac-man all eight pixels of him with <laughs> bad enough graphics that it got bad reviews on the best-selling console of yeah. the decade it looks like dog shit it looks like dog shit it looks terrible can, and that can someone post the bad graphics here so i can yeah i got it matt you keep talking i want to i have to know how you make bad graphic pac-man it, well part of it too is that the it's not the maze that you recognize mm-hmm. oh yeah okay. so that happened just a few months before et the extraterrestrial was released in the holidays of 1982 a very famous story in gaming um, oh god yeah it looks really bad. <laughs> yeah I just oh i hate it, it. also the thing about it is if you I'm, the picture doesn't do it justice but go watch footage of it the the care anything that was moving would blink on and off because the system couldn't handle the like assets the tracking so, the yeah and the tracking so like it literally would blink in and out of reality so it was like hard to follow yeah please continue Matt will do 
So most folks know the story of E.T. the Extraterrestrial. It was produced in six months. It was a garbage reskinned game. Everybody hated it. Buried in the desert. But (laughs) it was actually one of the best selling games of late 1982 and early 1983, selling 2.6 million copies, according to Billboard, in 1983. Unfortunately, the game would see 66,000 more returns than sales (laughs) in the year 1983. (laughs) Wow. That's very good. That's like Xbox 360 Red Ring of Death like levels of incompetence screw up yeah Mm -hmm. yeah the order of events goes something like this 1982 had a jillion game releases because everyone wanted to make a quick buck 1983 had a bunch of people wanting to return garbage games they bought the year before because if you had an atari 2600 and your friend had a ColecoVision and your friend bought Coleco your your friend bought Pac-Man for the ColecoVision and you bought Pac-Man for the 2600 you had a different experience and that was a problem. So anyway, a bunch of people wanted to return the garbage games they bought the year before. These games were cranked out so fast by fledgling developers that they didn't have the financial security to fund the returns. Stores didn't have anyone to sell the games back to once the developers folded, so they put them in bargain bins. A game which sold for $35 in, you know, 1982 was bargain bin down to barely $5, and that's in 83 money. So a game which sold for $104 in 2022 money was being sold for $14.95. Yeah, that's... That's rough. They may as well be giving them away at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My final bit uh, about the backstory. You guys remember Activision? Well, 1983 hit them so hard, they quit making console games forever and became a PC exclusive developer. So that's neat. Hmm. Forever. Couldn't have happened to a better company. (laughs) 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 All right. And that brings us to the beginning of the console wars. So the year is 1983. Things don't look so good in America, in Japan. They look fine. Japan's doing just great. There has not been a gluttony of bad games. There hasn't been a market crash. And the NES is about to revitalize the home console market in America. So Nintendo released the Famicom in Japan in 1983, which still had a market free again of third-party glut. Nintendo also planted their flag in the ground as the quote-unquote take-our-ball-and-go-home kid by implementing strict rules on third-party publishers for their systems. The family call. (laughs) A very good call, yeah. Well, and I I always, I don't think I ever knew that as a actual established rule, but always just kind of realized growing up like, oh, Nintendo typically doesn't let just anything like be on their platform, which now makes it really wild that you can go to like as far back as the Wii online store and now the Switch yeah. store and you see the shit that's I in mean, there and you're the like Switchy oh. shop these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we talked about it in our Nintendo Power, but this our Nintendo Power episode, but this was Howard Phillips and the seal of approval. That's exactly mm-hmm. ah, yeah. Yep. yep. Exactly. 
So the Famicom was a massive hit in Japan. Well, actually, this is a little before Howard Phillips, but we'll get there here in a minute. The Famicom was a massive hit in Japan, but Nintendo was hesitant to send product to North America. You know, it was still in the throes of a crash, and nobody had really proved that you could sell video games yet. They spent years figuring out how to recreate their success overseas. And this is not a Nintendo flavor text, so I'll spare you the details, but NOA was formed, some plucky white dudes helped craft two solutions to the main problem, nobody wanted to buy a video game console. Solution number one, the name. The Famicom was a name drawn from family and computer, which in the 1980s, and arguably still today, was the literal definition of a game console. They wanted to brand the console not as a video game, but as a plaything, something more accessible to the every person, a toy. The name Nintendo Entertainment System was born and was colloquially adopted as the NES. Solution number two, the aesthetics. Personally, I think the OG Japanese Famicom is the best-looking game console maybe ever, but at least pre-1990. Unfortunately, that's because it is the most video game console-ass video game console to ever video game console. It is angular, colorful, a little gaudy, and the Famicom was just not the 1983 American aesthetic. It had little holsters on the side for your controller. Yeah, it's so mm -hmm. fun! Yeah, it's, it's a cool design. Has any other gaming system straight up had that as a default out-of-the-box Thing. I know there's lots of like docks you can buy, but has any other system just had a holder, a holster for your uh, for your controller? Pre-1983, the answer to that question was most of them because most yeah, controllers were like cabled and attached. Now, mm -hmm. I would say since 2017, it's the Nintendo Switch. I would yeah. argue another another reason why like for the change since we were talking about like John Q Everyman here wanting to be a target market, there was still a strong like anti-Japanese sentiment like in America. Mm -hmm. There was a very much like buy American, don't buy foreign things. And like the Famicom looks very Japanese. Um, and it's Famicom is Japanese sounding. Nintendo is an, a Japanese name. And like they had to gusset up a bit to sell it to someone who's like dad or grandpa fought in world war ii and is harboring some japanese resentment from that era yeah i mean in 1983 we're what like 20 years removed yep. from the closing of the last american japanese internment camp mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i haven't looked at the numbers on that it could be less than 20 years if we're being honest but anyway let me move forward the 1983 american aesthetic was what I like to call gray plastic futurism. Or, to be diminutive, it was the aesthetic of a VCR. And that's what the Nintendo, or that's what Nintendo designed the NES to look like. Their goal was to turn it into a VCR. And I think they pretty much nailed it. Yeah. 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 At I mean, C it's even got the like the the flip door. Yeah. Of yeah. A VCR. It's a it's a toyed up version of a VCR. Like it's not yeah. not quite as sterile as a VCR is, but it's it's yeah, a VCR. The, the NES screams Space Mountain. Yeah. 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 
At CES in 1985, Nintendo unveiled the Nintendo Entertainment System to the North American market and distributed across the states in 86. The release of the NES officially marked the end of the video game crash of 83 by proving it was once again possible for executives to make their cocaine money by selling video game consoles in America. And let me be very specific that we're talking about America here. Home consoles never went out of style in Japan quite the way they did here. Because of this, on July 15th, 1983, the same day the Famicom was released in Japan, another smaller company released a console known as the SG-1000 and planted the seed for Nintendo's arch enemy of the console wars. And my game for this era is Kung Fu. 1985's Kung Fu, an arcade port to the NES, One of my personal favorite NES titles and a game that I grew up playing a lot because it was one of the games that my dad had. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It, I think, shows off the colors of the NES better than a lot of the early games because a lot of the early games struggled with green. And Kung Fu has a lot of fun colors in it. Also, it really just nails the home consoles are arcade cabinets for your living room, which was the market especially in America in the early 1980s. Definitely. So the NES release begins the third generation of consoles or the 8-bit generation. If we're being honest, you can just call the whole third generation the NES generation because that's what it was for the better part of three years. Despite having a bit of a stronger CPU, the SG-1000 never made more than a splash in the ocean of video game consoles. But who released the SG-1000, and where did they come from? Well, this is no more a Sega flavor text than it was a Nintendo flavor text, but I'll give you the background of Sega since it's largely lesser known, and honestly, it's pretty interesting. In 1940... Three sweaty American businessmen puffed their cigars on the, shan- on the sandy shores of the American territory of Hawaii and thought, this place needs more casinos. They created standard <laughs> games to provide coin-operated games and slot machines to military bases during the lead-up to World War II. After the war, those same sweaty businessmen sold standard games and launched service games in 1946 named for their revisioned focus on providing games to servicemen specifically. Hmm. In 1952, the U.S. government outlawed slot machines in the territories for a whole litany of problematic reasons that I won't get into here, and service games' whole business model was disrupted. They pivoted by sending some fuelers to Japan to establish their important business of bringing slot machines to military bases there. Within a few years, they handled the importing of coin-op games to every major U.S. base around the world. A bunch of stuff happened, the company traded hands a few times, and coin-op games transitioned from slot machines to arcade games. In 1968, Sega launched an arcade cabinet called Periscope, which not only popularized the quarter-per-play cost model in American arcades, but also began a technological renaissance in the arcade games industry. Sega continued to grow as one of the largest arcade publishers in the world for the next 15 years, and they released the SG-1000, and now you're all caught up. 
question, Matt. Is yes. this the master system? Or this is not the master system. We are not there yet. Yeah. I have a question for Matt as well. Hit me. How do we know they're sweaty? Mm. Same question. Show your work. I looked at the pictures of the guys whose names I didn't include because mm. this isn't a Sega flavor text and they look sweaty. Also, they're white people in Hawaii in the 40s. There's no way yeah. they weren't sweaty. I'll they, accept these are, yeah, that's an acceptable answer. Um, yeah. I do like that Service Games was abbreviated to Sega. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Good. What's kind of interesting, too, is nobody knows exactly when the name Sega was adopted like company-wide. It showed up... Mm-hmm. Uh, it showed up as an abbreviation on a slot machine, I think, in 54. Uh, but nobody knows exactly when it was like, oh, we're Sega now, uh, which is is kind of fun. Hmm. My takeaway is um, Sega is part of the military industrial complex. Sure is, Kyle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. ACAP includes Sega. Well, and like you made the comment earlier about like, oh, it was only 20 years after the internment camps. 1952 was less than 10 less, years after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Less than and right. Like, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they're like, hey, hey, remember Japan? Let's get into business with them. Well, that's and that's why they went by the very, very like not Japanese name of standard games. And yeah, yeah. Service games. Like mm-hmm. they, they knew what they yeah. were doing. Amer- American men games. Included. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like quite literally. So as I was saying, the SG-1000 never made a splash to rival the NES. Sega tried to redesign the SG-1000 twice. First with the SG-1000 Mark II, and then again with the Sega Mark III. I think the Mark II fixed an icing problem it had when it got to high elevation. Mm. And then <laughs> and then the Mark III was the beginning of it like automatically like like more portable. It's an yeah. Iron Man joke. It's an Iron it's, Man joke. It was a good Iron Man it. joke. It was Highbrow. good. Yeah, it was specifically for this podcast. <laughs> Unlike the Marks One and Two, the Mark Three was actually more powerful than the NES. Sega basically said, "We have all this hardware that's running these incredible arcade cabinets, but they won't fit in the SG One Thousand. What if we made the SG One Thousand bigger and boasting six times the memory of the NES?" The Sega Mark III was over a foot across and nearly a half foot deep. For comparison, the Famicom was about seven inches at its widest. Um, Xbox dimensions. For for further comparison, yeah, it's about as big as the PS5. Original Xbox is 14 and a half inches, uh, and the Sega Mark III was 14.4. So there you go. Sega leaned in on the power of their new console and their marketers hammered away at how much faster and smoother gaming looked on the Mark III than it did on the Famicom. The Sega Mark III was released in Japan late in 1985. After it gained popularity in Japan and the heads of Sega saw saw all of NOA's Coke money, NOA being Nintendo of America, they decided to rebrand and remodel the Mark III for the Western audience. And in late 1986, the Sega Master System was debuted at, say it with me, CES. So there's the Master Power System, friendship. Andrew. Yeah, okay. Power Friendship. The, the friends we made along the way. Yeah. Unfortunately, CES. CES. Can I, yes. What is CES? A, that is the Co- Consumer Electronics Show. Thank um, you. 
It actually just happened in Vegas, like last weekend or two weekends oh, ago, I think. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Still happens every year. Unfortunately for Sega, they had no idea the uphill battle they were about to take on. Remember those strict Nintendo licensing rules I mentioned earlier? Well, Daddy Nintendo had been telling developers for years that they could only design games for Nintendo systems if they promised not to release them for anyone else. This was partially to guard Nintendo's market share, but also served to present another game glut like 1983. We- and this... Th- Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Weird to think why Nintendo has such a tenuous relationship with its third-party developers. Yeah, yeah right? Strange. <laughs> I know. And this, Andrew, you nailed it earlier, is when Todd Howard enters the picture and the Nintendo seal of approval becomes And he standard. created Elder Scrolls. Yep. <laughs> oh, my bad. I said the, whatever. <laughs> Todd Howard is the bio, is the uh, yeah. Bethesda guy. He's who we have to thank for Fallout 76. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about that. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> both in Japan and America, Sega was left to either create games for themselves or port Nintendo games on their own, presumably in a sketchy back alley under the dead of night. As an extra slap in the nuts to Sega, their U.S. distributor, their U.S. distributor Tonka, yes, the people behind Tonka Trucks, opted not to localize a number of games sent over from the Japanese branch of the company, cutting down the already small library available for the Master System. And I have to imagine... It was partially because Tonka could not have had a large localization wing. I I just do not believe that Tonka had a lot of people working on localization. Too many trucks to make. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Can't can't translate. I got a truck. Anyway, this also seems like a fine time to point out that Nintendo had a whole dick load of accessories, games, and peripherals widely available to the world and was just printing money long before the Mark III even made it to shelves. I mean, this is the era of the gun, right? This like, is the light zapper. Yeah, my Nintendo came with a gun. Yeah, dude. Can you think about that for a second? That's, like, a, pretty, imagine, that's a pretty 80s thing. A pretty, sure thing. A pretty, pretty American thing. Pretty American thing. Yeah. Here's, here's Nintendo. It comes with a, a, a cartridge that has two games, Mario and Duck Hunt. Duck Hunt for gun. Here you go. (laughs) Despite all this, the Sega Master System slash Mark III was the only third-gen console to hold a candle to the numbers the NES did. The NES sold just under 62 million units worldwide. The Master System did just under 20 million. It is important to note that eight of that 20 million came from a late but long-lasting popularity in Brazil thanks to a company called Tech Toy. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Third place in sales goes to this weird little creepy thing called the Dendi, uh, which fans of Game Grumps may be familiar with, which was an unlicensed clone of the Famicom that sold 6 million units in the USSR. Fourth place in sales goes to the rotting corpse of Atari and their <laughs> 7800, which may, and it is... It is not confirmed, may have managed to sell 1 million units, depending on who you ask. And my game of this generation is a game for the Sega Master System. 
Alex Kidd in Miracle World of 1986. Are any of you guys familiar with Alex Kidd? No, I we're back know... in the, the vague games I don't know. I yeah. only know Alex Kidd as far as Alex Kidd was Sonic before Sonic was Sonic. Yeah, so that's why I included this. Alex Kidd in Miracle World was the first Sega... Um, IP? Not necessarily IP, but Alex... Alex Kidd was supposed to be their Mario. He was their mascot. Sure. Alex Kidd in Miracle World was their first mascot game. At least that's what they hoped it would be. Judging by how many big Alex Kidd fans there are in this podcast, it did not <laughs> go well. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, apparently Alex Kidd in Miracle World was re-released last year in 2021 for oh. PS4. Tight. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. All right. And with that... It brings us to the dawn of 16-bit gaming. So, depart with me from 1986, because here comes player three with the 16-bit chair. My <laughs> <laughs> God. My <laughs> God. <laughs> he broke him in half. <laughs> <laughs> At the IRL hub world of video games in the 80s, CES, the world saw what life would be like if only it had eight more bits. Telecommunications and computer company NEC brought a console known as the PC Engine to the show floor in 1987. Oh, I know this one. I know this one. Yeah? Hang on. I'm just... I'm, Bomberman's, I'm just... Bomberman's home base. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking of the idea that someone's like, you know, sweaty CEO with cigar and chairs like, ah, eight bits. Eight bits. It doesn't get better than this. Eight bits. <laughs> and then someone, someone, then someone in a, in a like t-shirt and, and cargo shorts comes in. You know, it'd be cool. Sixteen bits. I was gonna say a, a bigger, sweatier man in a bigger uh, suit. Yeah. Going, no, was, you're not thinking big enough. We need sixteen bits. I was going for a uh, lose the the in the Facebook. Uh, right. Right. Uh, yeah. That was yeah. what I was trying to evoke. Yeah. Smash cut to a sweaty kid streaming on Twitch saying, thanks for the bits. Anyway, <laughs> the secret of the PC engine was that it was actually only running an 8-bit CPU, but it included graphic rendering components up to 16-bit, and fuck you for asking. NEC marketed the console as a 16-bit system to distinguish it from the NES and the Genesis. PC Engine isn't a fun, snappy name like NES or Master System, so the PC Engine was rebranded as the TurboGrafx-16 ahead of its worldwide launch. The TurboGrafx ran cards and eventually CDs as it was expanded with add-ons. It gained decent traction in Japan, but it never caught ground in America. If anything, the true legacy of the TurboGrafx as it pertains to this flavor text, is that it lit the fire under the asses of Sega, who lit the fire under the asses of Nintendo, and together they modernized gaming in ways we still feel today. Konami actually announced a TurboGrafx-16 Mini in 2019, which after a number of COVID delays was released in North America in May of 2022, which is pretty oh, cool. Fun. Yeah. What, now uh, I'm I'm oh, looking it up to see what's on it. I'm, now I'm curious. It's got to be like 18 Bomberman's on it. 
Well, at least one of those games is my focus game for this section, which is Bonk's Adventure, 1989 Bonk's Bonk's Adventure. Adventure. I love Bonk's Adventure. A little little caveman boy. Yeah. Mm. Bonk's Adventure is a game that was ported to a whole bunch of systems, and I just, like, I think if you're looking to play a video game from 1989 to see what the dawn of 16-bit graphics was like, you you go play Bonk's Adventure. It's a great time. And I think at least recently it was on Game Pass. I don't know if it hmm. still is. Hmm. Nice. Um, this TurboGrafx 16 Mini looks real fun. Honestly. Yeah. yeah. I didn't look at it at all. Yeah, yeah, I know it it's in cool. the same vein as like the SNES Mini and the Genesis Mini and, and all of those. Yeah. But um, which I actually I don't talk about it in here. But did you know they made Game Gear minis at the same time? They made little baby Game Gears. I, I did know that. see that because yeah. Game Gear always catches my eye because I was one of twelve same. kids in America and that had it. Right. You and I both have that shared background. Which a fun trivia that I learned recently, Kyle, about Game Gear is a lot of the games that we had on Game Gear were just Master System games. Yeah, that is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never that's knew. why it took six C batteries to power your Game Gear <laughs> for twenty minutes. Yeah. All right, so the year is 1987, and Sega is still, at its core, an arcade game company. This would serve to help their console development team finally get a leg up on Nintendo as the fourth generation of consoles began to gain steam. Just like they did with the Mark III, Sega decided to shove their 16-bit processor boards from their arcade cabinets into a smaller box, and the Sega Mega Drive was born. That's a good name. It is a good name. Objectively a good name. One of the best names so far. (laughs) Yeah. The Mega Drive was designed to be more mature looking, bringing the idea of mature look of, excuse me, bringing the idea of a mere, Jesus Christ, bringing the look of a mature look to consoles in Japan for the first time. I couldn't say it because I wrote that sentence bad. With 16-bit emblazoned front and center, the Mega Drive was better than the Turbo Graphics in every way, and also had a weird amount of audio options for customizability. Alas, one week before the release of the Mega Drive in Japan, Nintendo put out this small little game nobody has ever heard of for the NES called Super Mario Brothers 3. Improved oh. 8-bits <laughs> can, in fact, still outshine 16. Nintendo does what Nintendo did what Nintendo does best and it's like push the limits of their console to the to the max and it, like still put out a a solid game. It was a real Elden Ring coming out when Horizon Zero Dawn sequel came out. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I I still I mean I think that for everyone Super Mario Bros 3 has this like footprint in your life. Sure. Like the first time you find and use a warp whistle, like you skip the entire game and get to the last yeah. like level and eight your brain where you're explodes. dealing with. Yeah, when you're like a minute ago, I was in this like green little land. Now I'm on a warship. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit later. But this release schedule was the same in America, so like a week before. Sega's new console hit America and Nintendo released Mario Brothers 3, which at the time was a sequel to Mario Brothers 2, which was actually just Doki Doki Panic. 
And so America hadn't had a real Mario game in a hot minute. It was a, a big deal. Anyway, Sega wanted to send their new system to the States, as is tradition, redesigned it and re-released it as the Sega Genesis in North America. The now fourth-gen Sega console would be competing for market share with Nintendo's third-generation console and thus should have had the easy dub. After their localization issues with Tonka, Sega was on the hunt for a new distributor. They first went to the Atari Corporation, which I should note isn't really the same company that put out the 2600. This is the company that put out the 7200, which I mentioned earlier. After the crash of 83, Atari was sold off and then it was resold and, and restarted as the Atari Corporation as opposed to Atari Incorporated. Important distinction. Atari Corporation does not make as many good decisions as Atari Incorporated does. And one of those bad decisions was that Atari decided that the Genesis was too expensive and passed on the distribution deal. Ouch. The Genesis. I feel like, ever, like from what I can see, like this is just anecdotally my observation. Since '83, since the crash, Atari has just had cold feet on anything, and it's killed their brand. Um, Kyle, I'm sorry. Are you talking about industry heavy hitter Atari? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. This is a deep pull. Somebody out there will get it. Atar the 1983 video game crash treated Atari the way Stanley Kubrick treated Shelley Duvall. And that <laughs> is a reference for someone. And I stand by that reference. Oh, wow. That, that hurts. Yeah. 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 So the Genesis retail price was $198.99 in 1989 or Four hundred and seventy-seven dollars and seventy-five cents in today money. So it was on the pricier end of consoles at the time. Sega decided instead to awaken the largely dormant Sega of America and do it themselves. They brought in former Atari Entertainment Electronics Division, which Atari Entertainment is the twenty-six hundred Atari, not the seventy-two hundred Atari. So Atari Entertainment Electric Division President Michael Katz as CEO of SOA and said, now, Mike, you go out there and you pick a fight with the biggest kid on the playground to prove how tough you are. <laughs> Matt, and, I have a question. Yes. Did Michael Katz go on to make the worst third-party um, controllers after <laughs> he pulled Sega up into the same leagues as Nintendo? Same I don't question, but phrased as was Michael a, a famous motorcyclist whose nickname was Michael Mad Cats Cats. And then he went on to do the thing Kyle said. I don't actually know the answer to that question because I don't know what Michael Katz did after he left Atari. So I can't for sure say that he wasn't. I've never seen um, those people both in the same room at the same time. See what the Mad Cats Mad. Uh, Wikipedia has to say. Matt, did you happen to go on the Atari website? Like recently? Yeah. No, should I? So I I will explain. I just, I was like, out of curiosity while you're talking, I wonder what Atari's up to. So if I could just break down the Atari website into three three main categories. One, it's merch. Uh, merch. Two is 
where can I play Missile Command for free on the internet? <laughs> and three, Web3. No! Uh, yeah, no! So, <laughs> Atari's Not Atari! Is merch, Missile Command, <laughs> and blockchain oh, and NFTs. Uh, Michael Katz seems to have nothing to do with Mad Katz at this All right, cursory well, glance. Him. Yeah. But yeah, we're keeping an eye on it. Yeah. Atari, so I'm I'm on Atari's website now. Um, Atari, at one point, kind of recently, was was talking about re-releasing the 2600, and it looked sleek, and it, I mean, it looked really good, and it wasn't a mini, it was a, we're going to put out a new console with, like, ninth gen support, and it looked awesome, and it never went anywhere, and now there's an Atari VCS thing that I, I think is just like an emulator. Um, if you want to pay Atari $300 to play games, you can find online for free. Anyway. This is also me realizing Mad Cats has never been spelled with a K. And um, oh. that connection makes, that lack of connection makes more sense It's like now. a Mandela so, effect. I could yeah. have sworn it was a K. Right. Yeah. Well, when you put the Z on, the K is natural. Implied. Yeah, yeah. yeah truly. So, Cats took the shot heard around the world or assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand or invaded <laughs> Poland or whatever you want to call it. Are you with just... A... <laughs> Am I what, are you Todd? Just, are you just saying major notable yeah. historical things? Yeah, he, it, was, it was his battle at Fort Sumter. Those were huh. all things that started wars, Todd. That, it was his teapot that... dome scandal. <laughs> 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 Sorry. <laughs> So Michael Katz threw tea in the Boston Harbor with one simple marketing go. phrase. Did it. Sega does what Nintendo don't. Which, like, I know that that Andrew kicked it off with that, but man, that just like that's a good that's a good, a good, good line of marketing. Takes yeah. you back. Like, yeah. who, what I like to imagine is like that hit the airwaves because you know we were all watching the same media on the same channels like your target demographic for these games were watch or for these systems were watching nickelodeon and cartoon network and in my mind this ad broke and like the nintendo ceo spit his coffee out at the tv and was like whoa yeah brothers brothers immediately began fighting brothers like mm -hmm. um playground brawls broke out yeah like well and when matt when you mentioned when you noted the original name like the mega drive is a really good name and the master system is really good names and in my head i was like man sega marketing kind of has always been on point right like yes. yeah like, this whole thing like the console wars is broken down to marketing but also when you think about like 999.99 right like mm -hmm. the dreamcast launched a 9999 i've never mm -hmm. had a dreamcast but i will go to i will be to my grave knowing that the Dreamcast launched nine nine ninety nine. Like they're and even today, like their marketing is and always has been on point. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Excuse me. Cats had a two prong plan to gouge into Nintendo's market share, and prong one was to prove the superiority of sixteen bits. Cats focused marketing heavily on the arcade-like quality of the Genesis, specifically on a game called Altered Beast, which was the original pack-in for the Genesis, and is also my little focus game of this section. So if you want to know what Sega was swinging with in 1998, check out Altered Beast. Um, 
Matt I or remember that. Kyle or Todd, whoever the hell's editing this, we're going to need to get a, a wise from the grave. Wise <laughs> <laughs> from your grave. Cat's second prong was to license the absolute shit out of this thing. Cats used as much of Sega of Japan's money as they would give him to tie celebrity names to their games. The big hits of this are Pat Riley basketball. Oh, here it comes. Arnold Palmer golf. Oh, we're getting there. <laughs> Joe Montana football. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And my personal favorite, Michael Jackson's moonwalker. Yeah, yeah. there it is. <laughs> now, man, br- I forgot about this era. Good game. Which actually started a pretty long-standing partnership between Sega of America and Michael Jackson, which led to Michael Jackson doing the music for Sonic 2. Three. Three. Yes, my bad. Sonic 3. I've looked at a lot of numbers Which was confirmed. That was a rumor forever. It's been an urban rumor forever. And uh, it was confirmed. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this would be the era of... Wasn't... What did Michael Jordan's... uh, Chaos in the Windy City. What did that was that on Sega? Uh, that was on SNES. Yeah, that was that was later. Michael Jordan. We're a little early for yeah, Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan's okay. not in the NBA yet. He's still at UNC right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. So a brief note on Joe Montana's football. It was supposed to be released by a company called Mediagenic, which is really just two Activisions in a trench coat. <laughs> <laughs> you want to explain that a little better? I don't yeah. know. Uh, you remember it's funny imagery. It is, right? Remember when I said Activision was like never doing console games again? There were a couple of people at Activision who were like, what Maybe if? let's do some console games. Okay. Yeah, and they, gotcha. they formed Mediagenic. So okay. got it. There was some office politics on Mediagenic's side, and the game was given to another company to finish. That company was chosen largely because they had been able to reverse engineer both NES and Genesis cartridges, allowing them to, in a sense, publish whatever they wanted. This company was also working on another licensed football game for personal computers, which they would eventually port to the Genesis as well. That game was John Madden Football, and that company was Electronic Arts. There it is. Uh, There's There's another big villain. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> Gang's all here, man. The gang is all here. And is EA also now owned by Activision again? Is, no. Is it just... Okay. Yeah, I think they're on their own. Okay. So just, it's just I always see them in the same conversations. I get it now. Yeah, I, yeah. I know what I did. They're, they're, EA is interesting because <laughs> they, like, they, they haven't been the villain as much as Activision Blizzard has and Ubisoft has recently. It feels like they've already like taken their flack and kind of like been like yep. went back right. to laying low. They, yeah, 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 yeah. We're just yeah. gonna make Star Wars games here in the background. Don't mind us. <laughs> so, despite Sega and Cat's efforts, I would say their best efforts, but that claim would be disputed. The Genesis struggled to gain traction and had only sold around five hundred thousand units in the U.S. by mid nineteen ninety. Super Mario Brothers three coming to the states in nineteen ninety didn't help. So it's been seven years since the quote-unquote crash happened. Sega has released two consoles. A whole new competitor has joined the conversation. And that may leave you wondering, what was Nintendo doing during this time? The answer is swimming in money and crushing cocaine. Yeah. As the story goes, 
Nintendo execs weren't even focused on creating a new console. The NES still commanded so much of the worldwide market share that they didn't see any reason to stop supporting it. This is perhaps the only true mistake, and I'll throw that in heavy quotes, Nintendo made during the console wars, and it's hard to call it a loss, considering they supported the NES through 1994. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. As Sega started to become known for its extensive library of third-party games, Nintendo countered by loosening their tight publishing rules, albeit just a little bit. Capcom, Konami, Tecmo, and Taito were all cranking out NES games, and it wouldn't be long before Nintendo would begin its relationship with a small studio called Rare. Nintendo also became the keeper of the RPG genre when a company called Square introduced the world to Final Fantasy, which was quick to overshadow Sega's similarly named Fantasy Star. Except for Todd. Except for, <laughs> unless your name's Todd Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> The, the hours I've put into Fantasy Star Episode 2, I can't, I can't get into it. <laughs> Even as 16-bit consoles pushed the envelopes on what games could look like and received massive third-party support, Nintendo continued to pump out bangers for the NES, including Dr. Mario, Wario's Woods, and of course, the giga-hit Tetris in 1989. One of those things is not like the other. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> who's, who's looking at Wario's Woods on the same level as Tetris? <laughs> Tetris. <laughs> or even Dr. Mario. Like, let's yeah. be real. I mean, we played a shit ton of Dr. Mario. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm saying like... No, he's who, saying Wario's Woods on Wario's the same level as Dr. Mario shouldn't or Tetris. should be on the same, gotcha, the same gotcha. sense as Dr. Mario yeah. either, yeah. Yeah. Wario's Woods actually considered by some folks at Nintendo to be Super Mario Brothers 4 um, oh, and, and considered to be the sequel to Super Mario Brothers 3, whereas Super Mario World is a new series. So, yeah, there you go. Anyway, I did pull a little focus game out. Uh, if you want to play late era NES game, and I recommend you do because late era NES games are a true gift to video game history. The Incredible Crash Dummies from 1994 is a very good one. Man, um, remember when crash test dummies were like a brand? That, trying to sell yeah. toys, man. Yeah. Just trying right. to sell toys. And um, trying to push, put on your put on your goddamn seatbelt. I, yeah. um, I would say, Matt, see also Mega Man 6. Which Mega I Man I put, 6. I keep in that, that pantheon, yeah. too. Mega Man 6 was my other game that I was going to put here. Um, I nice. just, I played Incredible Crash Test Dummies, and I did not play Mega Man 6. Crash NES. Test Dummies is the better pool, I think. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really good pool. Um, there was another late era game that I actually owned and played a lot of, and I purchased like with my own saved up money through a bargain bin at the local game store called Cobra Triangle, uh, which really flexes mobility on the NES, uh, giving you eight direction movement with a four direction D-pad, which is a lot of fun. Um, the I spiritual absolutely... predecessor to Triangle Strategy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely played this game on Super Nintendo. Crash Dummies? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. I If you still had a functioning NES in 1994 and didn't have a newer console yet, you were you were playing Crash Dummies. So moving on here, Sega wasn't happy with their market share, and they came to a two-pronged plan to fix it. 
prong one was to get rid of original two prong <laughs> maestro Michael Katz. <laughs> <laughs> Throw out the old prongs. <laughs> prong two was to find a mascot. And these prongs were pronged in 1991. Problem one was solved with the introduction of former Mattel president and career toy guy, Tom Kalinske. You'll hear more on him later. Problem two was a little bit more of a stick point. Sega's, Sega's official mascot was Alex Kidd, but he just couldn't stand up to the world's most popular plumber. Sega president Hayao Nakayama wanted the company to develop an iconic character who could lead its own line of games. A bunch of ideas were thrown out, but they landed on animals pretty quickly. Outside of the art department, Sega had recently had an internal tech demo of a game which featured a ball rolling through tubes. This prompted the art team to narrow it down to, quote, only animals who could curl up into balls. Artist Naoto Oshima, and I know I butchered that, I'm sorry, introduced a hedgehog with attitude named Sonic, who they colored Sega Blue. Yes. Nice. Yes. What a, yeah, like, <clears throat> once we once we started going down this path, I very, it's very easy to see how they got to, like, the only thing that could go up against Mario is an adorable animal that acts like Bart Simpson. Like It's gotta, yeah, it's gotta have <laughs> yeah. attitude. Yeah. yeah. Now, important to note, in 1991, Sonic had a leather jacket and a very Marilyn Monroe-type girlfriend. He awesome. did not test well. Some redesigns later, and we were given the spiky, chili dog-loving freak we all know and love. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's go back to Tom Kalinske. This guy's importance to the console wars cannot be understated, but it's already been covered in great detail by people much more journalistic than myself. I'm going to sum up the Tom Kalinske section of this flavor text with this. Kalinske had not just a two-pronged plan for Sega of America to prong, but had, in fact, four-pronged plan to prong. Oh, that's so many prongs. It's a lot of prongs. As the Sega execs knew, doubling numbers is good, and thus, all four prongs were pronged. Line only goes up. <laughs> <laughs> So, prong number one, Tom Kalinske encouraged Sega to adopt what's known as the razor and blade model. Basically, cut the price of the Genesis so you can sell the games for more, which is the idea of sell them one cheap razor, sell them mm -hmm. a thousand expensive razor blades. Yeah, right. Sega dropped the Genesis from 189 down to 149. And that's in 1991 money, which is equivalent to $327.85 in today's money, which is pretty significant. Yes. Not bad. That's, that's the method, um, at least the first two, or the PS2 and 3 took, was like um, Sony lost. lost money on every PlayStation 2 and 3 and made it all back yeah. on the games. Yep. Hmm. And then they just lost money on the PlayStation 3. Yeah. <laughs> Stop doing that. Yep. <laughs> So prong number two of Kalinske's four prongs, keep making Sega look cooler than Nintendo at all costs. Nintendo had flashed their hand 
by announcing that the successor of the NES was going to be a more family-friendly console. Sega was for the edgy teens because they screamed Sega a lot. And if anything brings you back like Sega does what Nintendo don't, somebody popping onto the screen and going, Sega! Should bring it back a little oh, harder. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yep. Um, that was known as the Sega Scream, which I did not know until I started researching that today. Hmm. Prong number three. Make the types of games that Americans like. Those games are sports games, so we need to get EA on retainer. And that's the prong, and that's the prong Microsoft copied with the Xbox. Yeah. And that, I mean, that was it. Like, you want to sell consoles in America, Americans aren't playing Final Fantasy, except Andrew. They're playing Truth. John Madden's football. We need more John Madden's footballs. And then finally, excuse me, John's Madden football. John's mm-hmm. Madden Thank football. You for- yeah. John's Madden <laughs> football. <laughs> but a cursed correct, sentence. That's the correct plural of. John Madden football. That's that's like what you get at like a back a back alley market. <laughs> that's what that's what your that's what your grandma buys it's, for it's, for you for Christmas. It's yeah. on your Playtendo. Seven, <laughs> seven bodegas in New York City sell a John Madden's football. Anyway, <laughs> prong number four and easily the most important prong. They needed to pack in the upcoming Sonic game with every. Genesis. Now, Sega of Japan was not stoked to lower the price of their console, and they were even less stoked on the idea of giving away their shiny new mascot IP for free. But Kalinsky pushed hard, and he meant every Genesis because he went on through Sega of America to offer purchasers of the last two years the opportunity to return their altered beast cartridge for a shiny new Sonic cartridge. Wow. wow. That's, That's significant. Good marketing. Sega instituted all four of these changes before the Super Nintendo even released in America at the end of 1991. And I've got another great 1991 Sega Genesis game for you. It's called Decap Attack. And if you Hell haven't yes. seen Decap Attack, mm-hmm. it is... It's up there with Bonk's Adventure as far as like what is this trippy game going? I like. I it. never played it, but I remember this cover art. Like this is this sticks out purposely in my mind. This thing looks like the monster from Looney Tunes. It does. It super does. Yeah. All right. Finishing out this first section here, Nintendo was forced to play on their heels for the first time since the fall of the old god known as Atari. When the Super Nintendo Entertainment System launched in the States, it had an absolutely massive library of eight games. Eight (laughs) games. Classic. (laughs) While the Genesis already had over 150. In some ways, the Super Nintendo was outdated by the time it launched in America. Wait, are you trying to tell me that the famously successful company Nintendo of America had a somewhat stumble of a launch for a major console that would be remembered for years to come. You know, interestingly enough, I don't think I would call it a stumble of a launch, and I'll tell you why in approximately two bullet points. Bullet point number one, Nintendo tried to shift their marketing to the new 3D abilities of the Super Nintendo, which, yes, 
had a pre-US release. Japanese history is the Super Famicom. They called it Mode 7. Mode 7 allowed backgrounds to be scaled and rotated on a scanline basis. Yeah. I don't have the technical knowledge to explain this well, but it made games like Chrono Trigger, F-Zero, Kirby Superstar, Link to the Past, and Mario Kart (laughs) all possible. Mario Kart's the example that, and well, probably F-Zero too, that sticks out the best to this. That you're, it's not really 3D, but it's like... It's a 3D effect. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The Super Nintendo may not have had a large library at launch. This one's for you, Todd. But titles right. like F-Zero and Super Mario World were enough to bolster it to a record-breaking 3.4 million units sold in the last four months of 1991 alone. Nintendo's F-Zero, got the IPs, baby. F-Zero being... and I know that it's like a good IP, but F-Zero being a flagship IP is kind of wild to think yeah. about. It was eye-catching. I mean, Super Mario World's such a fucking banger. Like, yeah. Right. That well, carried that carried the system for um years. at time of recording, that is actually going to be on Awesome Games Done Quick. Oh, uh, they're oh. doing a Super Mario uh 3. Sick. And this is another time to note like this is 1991. We aren't still in full arcade mode, but games are driven largely by what people are playing in arcades and racing games are popular. Yep. So F-Zero mm-hmm. had a lot of legs to stand on because people were used to standing on their legs playing racing games. Oh, there you nice. go. Thanks. There you go. Yeah, I didn't plan that when I started it. It just happened. Anyway, despite this, the third-party support and existing market for the Genesis helped it keep up with Nintendo's numbers. In fact, a number of third-party developers broke their exclusive contracts with Nintendo to go make games for the Genesis in the early 90s. That included names like Acclaim, Konami, Tecmo, Taito, and eventually Capcom, who would break and become exclusive to Sega. And that is where we are going to cut to a quick break. So, we have covered the beginning of the console wars, the rise of Sega, and we are going to get into the back nine of the console wars right after this. Hey guys. Hey Andrew. Hey Andrew. Do you want to know what I did the other night? Less now with that tone of voice you have. Yeah. Our pregnant pause makes me think no, but you're going to do it anyway. (laughs) So I'm going to do it anyway. So my wife is out of town. A great start. (laughs) Yeah. And it was Saturday night. You know how it was like seven, eight o'clock just got dark. So I was like, I, uh, you know, put on some candles, opened a bottle of wine, closed the blinds, and I shaved my balls. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. I shaved my balls, and it was great. It was quite the experience. Shaving my balls is always such a uh, tenuous and tedious task. How did you make a full evening activity out of it? Well, one, I would recommend opening a bottle of wine. Alcohol and and sharp I objects around my junk is um, not my idea of a good shave time. My balls drunk. I'm constantly worried about nicks and snags. Well, I'm not saying drink the whole bottle, you monster. <laughs> so before I continue talking about my dick and balls, <laughs> I do want to note that support for debate this is brought to you all today by Manscaped. 
who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. <laughs> that rhymes. Yeah. It does. It sure does. The reason why I lit some candles and poured a glass of wine was because uh, they sent us Lawnmower 4.0s, and uh, I really enjoyed my experience with the lawnmower 4.0 which was this part was not meant to be as sexual as it is coming but i'm going to keep mo- i'm going to keep going you're going to keep mowing <laughs> i'm going to keep mowing but for real though so i i used the toner the ball toner and i out loud completely unprovoked in a completely empty house yelled <laughs> my dick smells like sandalwood <laughs> why did i do that I don't know. I had been drinking, but maybe it was because that ball tenor smelled so goddamn good. What I'll add is as a longtime personal user of Manscaped products, I bought my first uh, trimmer in 2017 and the fourth generation lawnmower. It's real good. It's got that good advanced skin safe technology. It, it you know keeps you from getting as many nicks and snags and and helps with ingrown hairs. It's It's a great little tool. For your tool. family jewels. I feel like that joke's already been made. For yeah. your most precious content. Oh, that's a good one, too. <laughs> Manscaped's performance package, the ultimate men's hygiene bundle. Join over 7 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer just for you and everybody else listening to me and my three best friends talk about our balls. 20% off. Best friends is a little much. <laughs> Yeah, okay, that's fair. Three people <laughs> I know talking about our balls. That's better. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code debate this, all one word, at manscaped.com. And if my math is correct, that's about 14 million balls. That's a lot of nards. It's a lot of balls. And they all smell like sandalwood. Right. <laughs> Welcome back to this flavor text on the console wars. We left off with Sega and their genesis getting a leg Ayo. up nice getting a leg up on the super nintendo being able to keep up with its numbers but not really you know knocking nintendo out of the top spot now it's time to go into a little bit of a lightning round like i said at the beginning of this flavor text the console wars and everything that happened between 83 and 95 cannot be distilled down into a two-hour podcast. Like, if you want to hang out for the next 12 hours, we can do that, but I don't have that kind of time, and neither (laughs) do my three friends who want to go watch GDQ. So I've bullet-pointed a couple of important things here, and again, I have some uh, sources and recommendations here at the end if you want to get in a little more. So this section is where I'm going to skip a whole bunch of details to get us to the next year. You may have noticed I'm not talking at all about handheld consoles. Well, that was the proverbial Western theater of the console wars. (laughs) Game Boys and Game Gears, and I guess like maybe a few Lynxes and like one Turbo Express were sucking. Wonder Swan was was one I remember. That is one. Boy, that era. I'm impressed. Anyway, they were sucking down AA batteries at a horrifying rate. This was happening in the background of the console wars during the early 90s. There's some really interesting info about all of this, but for the sake of time, I'm leaving it out. All you really need to know is that Nintendo made more money selling Game Boys and repackaged Game Boys than most companies at the time were worth in liquidation. There you go. 
I did learn in my research, and this is the one fun handheld fact that I will give you because I didn't know this. The Game Boy, the Game Boy Pocket, the Game Boy Light in Japan, and the Game Boy Color worldwide, all the same system. It's all exactly the same. There's nothing different between the Game Boy and the Game Boy Color as far as processing power goes. The only thing they added was color capability. But it's huh. the same console. Interesting. And wow. Nintendo's official numbers consider units sold of Game Boy Colors to be part of units sold of Game Boy. So, hmm. yeah. I knew nice. I knew everything except Game Boy Color was all the same guts mm-hmm. in smaller and smaller shells. I did not know the Game Boy Color just added basically like the color screen. Yeah. That was the one that surprised me because this one of the things I was looking at earlier said like when Pokemon Red and Blue released in America for the Game Boy, Nintendo won the handheld wars. And I was like, released for the Game Boy? What the shit are you talking about? But it is under Nintendo's Red and, Red and rules Blue were Game Boy as Game Boy. Yeah, Red and Blue were pre Game Boy Color. Oh, really? I had Blue mm-hmm. on Game Boy Color. Yellow sure, was the but... first official Game Boy Color. Agreed. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. Well, my my blue cartridge was um for Game Boy Color, but I also didn't realize that um all Game Boy Colors are back compatible with all Game Boy games. Uh, yep. which you would think yep. would be something I knew as someone who owned both, but I didn't I would think you would know that. And yeah. and again, your Pokemon Blue was not a Game Boy Color game. It did not have yeah. like the the convex it, bump yeah, out at the top. It Super it was Duper made was with just a normal Game Boy game. It was made with colors, like there were colors in it because they knew that that was coming. They and, they, the super, and they also had the Super Game. They had Boy. the Super Game Boy at the time. Yeah, because yeah. every town was was themed with a color. They had yeah. to do that, but it it wasn't inherently made for Game Boy Color, like Sapphire or the uh, Gold like, Silver. So, yeah. so I will say that I I have a Pokemon blue that was released in the generation exclusively for the game, not exclusively, but was like the first one came out and then they were like, these sold a lot. We need to produce more. And I only know that because I have a game boy color box for my Pokemon blue. Okay. So Mm -hmm. there you go. Nerd. Um, But yeah, you, you're definitely right. Um, It is absolutely a game boy ass game boy game. Um, And that's, that's all I have about handhelds. That's like a whole crystal. Pokemon Crystal was the first, like, yes. only only right. on right. Game Boy Color. That is a Go whole nother ass flavor text if you want to talk about handhelds. It's, it's a whole goddamn thing, and I'm not going to do it today. So there you go. Next bullet in the lightning round. There are also some really incredible marketing stories here to compare. We talked about Donkey Kong exposed in the Nintendo Power flavor text. Oh, that was a gross burp. And that must (laughs) always be mentioned. The console wars were a part of everyday life, and it was fought on and off the battlefield. A picture of a celebrity in your gear was worth that celebrity's weight in both cocaine and gold. Major games were coming out almost weekly as support for the Genesis and the Super Nintendo expanded like a peep in a microwave. And this led to the birth of the whole games journalism industry, which we talked about as well on the Nintendo Power podcast, as specifically home console video game magazines began to become popular, not only in Japan, but worldwide. One of the best lost-to-time efforts of the console wars 
is Sega and Nintendo's attempt at online gaming. Sega launched the Sega Games Channel in the holidays of 1994. The Sega Games Channel was a way for Genesis gamers to pay to play games delivered to their consoles through Time Warner cable so ahead of its time. and a coaxial cable. Wow. Incredible. Mm. It is straight up the 1990s Game Pass. Not to be. Did out- it take three days for games to like install over? So you weren't installing anything. You, you were, were just streaming them. Yeah, you were streaming huh. games through coax. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Not I to mean, be outdone. Dreamcast and Dreamcast had online capabilities as well. Like also way ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Sure. So but did the that Saturn. Was like, yeah. But that, that was 1994. That- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Not to be outdone, Nintendo launched Satellaview exclusively in Japan, a way for Famicom owners to download games and media through a specific broadcast window. Now, what's interesting about this is it's all satellite powered. So there were specific times of day that you could get on and interact with specific things. And there was a schedule just like there would be for the TV guide. So you had two options. Option one was there was like a Famicom base attachment and you would download things to your Famicom. And they used that for some games, but mostly they used it for magazines and other art and media. Hmm. And then during Um, other broadcast windows that you could interact with a game, they would have live musical performances or live commentary done over the game. Yeah. That's so cool. if you may remember when we talked about Fire Emblem, Fire Emblem used this as like a very early DLC mechanic. Huh. Huh. Interesting. So that is the Satella view. My last lightning round bullet point. Meanwhile, the Green Party candidates of this whole situation still existed. <laughs> the Turbo Graphics was discontinued after selling a commendable 10 million units in comparison to the 35.25 million for the Genesis and the 49.1 million for the Super Nintendo. And if you had too much money to spend on a game console, you could lock yourself down an SNK Neo Geo for a cool 649.99 for the gold version or 399.99 for the silver version. Friendly reminder, those are 1991 numbers. Mm -hmm. And to equate that to today, that would be $1,420.77 for a gold version and $874.31 for the silver version. Also, Neo Geo games cost up to $250 in 1991 money as well. The Neo Geo Pocket Color is the other other handheld I remember from that tad later, but... Um, the same as the like Wonder Swan and Game Boy Color era. Yeah, definitely. Um, Neo Geo is is the uh, uh, oh, like the HD DVD of of the console wars. Yeah. Like there is a cult following. Um, people really love it. That's I mean, the Neo Geo games were the first virtual console games ported to the Switch. The Switch oh, yeah. had Neo oh, Geo right. games hmm. before it even had SNES and NES games, which is kind of interesting. Um, that's King of Fighters, right? That's where King yes. of Fighters is from. Fatal Fury as well. Yeah. Ah, okay. All right. So 
Let's round this out here. Let's talk about the end of the war. Back to the trenches with Sega and Nintendo. No one but me calls it this, but I like to think of this next bit of gaming history as the Frankenstein years. In the effort to continue one-upping each other, Nintendo and Sega were pushing their consoles to the absolute limits of their technical specs. This led to the rise of add-ons, with Sega debuting the Sega CD, the 32X, the Power Base Converter, and of course, the Knuckles base cart for your Sonic (laughs) games. (laughs) Real quick, did any of you... I, I knew one person that had a Sega CD. I saw a Sega I a CD in the yeah, wild. I, I never saw a Sega CD in the wild. I saw a Sega Saturn in the wild, and that was my, like... Okay. My, like... I had a friend oh. who had both. He had a Sega CD and a Sega Saturn. Damn, So dude. I also had the friend whose family was falling apart, so they were buying their kids nice things, and he had both as well. So that was uh, Sega and their add-ons. Then Nintendo found some kid who managed to render 3D shapes... And they convinced him to make a game called Star Fox. Unfortunately, the Super Nintendo just straight up didn't have the power to run the game. So Nintendo created the Super FX chip, an add-on not for the consumer, but for the developer. It basically doubled the processing power of the Super Nintendo with an onboard CPU to the cartridge. And eventually got a Super FX chip 2, which doubled that processing power again. so those were in like the Star Fox carts, not, yes. oh, yeah. not an add-on. That makes Nintendo's decision to stick with cartridges for the N64 make a lot more sense to me now. Uh, you're right. Except that <coughs> they, but then those, but then they had that curious decision to give you the expansion pack with your copy of DK64. Right. Right. That sure. was for the console, sure. not the cart. You're going to get a reason why Nintendo was scared of CDs here in a minute. Uh, don't worry, I'll, I'll explain. I, it I also know that side of it, too. But this this adds more context that also makes that decision for sure to me. Yeah. So the mad dash for more power opened the industry to a new technology, the compact disc, which computer company Sony had introduced in 1985. The Sega Genesis got a few versions of a CD add-on. The Sega CD family had minimal adoption and minimal support, but it did allow for full motion video and CD quality audio, both massive leaps forward for gaming at the time. There were a few banger games that were released for the Sega CD, but commercially it was a big flop. However, it was this foray into the realm of CD-driven content that, in my opinion, flew the games industry too close to the sun and inadvertently delivered the two final punches to the console wars. Now, I have two games here for my little focus game section. Game number one is part of the the Weird Game Grumps bit. It's Mad Dog McCree, 1993's Mad Dog McCree, a phenomenal arcade port to the Sega CD. I'm not familiar with that one. Oh, Todd, you're in for a surprise, my dude. And then I, know, I can't say I note how you said a pleasant surprise. That wasn't those weren't the words you said. Nope. And Matt, ca- Matt, it's it's Cole Cassidy now. It's oh, yeah, <laughs> it's, you're right. That's funny. That's a good bit. <laughs> took took Andrew a minute there. <laughs> oh, no. I and, know what this is. Andrew, I put this second game on here for you. Have you ever heard of Snatcher? 
1994 Snatcher. Ooh, I'm afraid not. I'm going to look it up, though. Wait till you no, see who produced Snatcher. Oh, this is for Andrew. Oh, is, is it Kojima? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So Hideo Kojima made a game for the Sega CD. It was only localized to English once and then never again, but it was called Snatcher, and there is not a ton of information about it on the internet. Let's talk about Nintendo CD console first and how the dark dealings of a circular data creation created both Nintendo's next rival and also marred Nintendo's reputation more than maybe anything else ever has. Nintendo wanted to create their own CD-driven console, and they needed a partner to do it. They went to none other than the debuting company of the CD, Sony. Sony actually worked on an SNES CD all the way up to a prototype phase. For reasons that aren't especially public, the contract between Sony and Nintendo didn't work out. As they had created the hardware, Sony pulled a very Nintendo move and took their ball and went home. Nintendo, with Coke on their nose and money in their hands, offered a license they held for Sony to another company, Philips Interactive, for use with their fourth-generation CD-driven console, the Philips CDI. Six games were released to the CDI, three for Mario and three for Zelda. And that is all we need to say about it. Meanwhile, in a Marvel-esque post-credit scene, Sony can be seen taking the SNES CD back to their secret lab. (laughs) to begin work on a new way to play, maybe even a whole station for it. Nah. Yeah, and my yeah. focus game for this section is the Philips CDI game, Zelda, The Wand of Gamelon. Oh, it's, I, this is so special. I mean, any playthrough you'll find on YouTube, any streamer, any AGDQ, yeah. incredible how it's, shitty this looks. Yeah. Have any of you guys real. played it? It's real 1993, too. I've, I've never not played, played it. it. So I didn't have any neighbors with fun Sega things, but I had a neighbor with a Philips CDI. Really? And How? yeah, um, his dad sold used cars and had a lot of money or used okay. motorcycles. <laughs> his say. parents were going through a messy divorce. <laughs> <laughs> had um, an uncle that worked at Nintendo. Yeah. yeah. We, all, we all had that kid. So <laughs> they had a, a Philips CDI that we played on a little bit, and his dad did have... It was either Wand of Gamelon or um, Faces of Evil. I honestly don't remember which one it was, but I did play a little bit of that, but there were other Philips CDI games that just straight up functioned better. I think the Philips CDI gets a bad name because of the Nintendo license games, but it was a functional console. It did things. It, it had games that functioned and weren't awful, um, and one of them was like a Crayola game that me and my neighbor really loved when we were like eight years old so there you go but zelda the wand of gamelon the only officially licensed legend of zelda game where you play the whole game as princess zelda and not as link Hmm. so my next point here really begins the end of the console wars much like tom kalinsky the importance of fighting games to the console wars also goes unsung all too often. Just like this whole thing began with getting arcade games to the home, a new genre of arcade games was about to finish the console wars in the same way. In 1992, 
Before Capcom became exclusive to Sega, they helped the SNES port Street Fighter 2. And this is the first Street Fighter 2, not the re-release of Street Fighter 2. Fighting games had taken over arcades all over the world. SNK also released Fatal Fury, which quickly gained a cult following. One of the biggest wins in the console wars as a whole was the release of Street Fighter II Championship Edition to the Genesis. Why, you ask? Mm. Well, arcade cabinets had begun to use a six-button layout for these fighting games. SNES controllers had four face buttons and two shoulder buttons, while the face of Genesis controllers only had three buttons. Nintendo was quick to latch on to the fact that playing Street Fighter on Genesis was more complicated and more difficult, even if it looked better. They went on to release Street Fighter 2 to the Game Boy, which oh. only has two buttons, because uh, fuck hell. you, that's oh, what man. a What a the, bitchy move. The Game Boy has such a like long history of fighting game attempts to come out to it, <laughs> and they just don't work, because it has two buttons. Like, Dude, if you look up uh, Street Fighter 2 for the Game Boy, it looks like vector graphics. It's really bad. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a mess. One of the... This stands out, and this is a Game Boy Color game, but it's like one of the only .5 ratings I've ever seen for a game, and it's a Shrek fighting game for the Game Boy Color that like is just unplayable because it's a fighting game with two buttons, and it's like a hastily put together Shrek cash grab. Like it's it, the review of it's amazing because they're brute brutal on it. But I was gonna ask, you said Shrek, but yeah, you said Shrek. I said Shrek. Yeah. Shrek fighting game. I had a buddy that was really into Dragon Ball Z and had a Dragon Ball Z fighting game for the Game Boy. I don't remember which one. And I remember that most of the like move mechanics involved how fast you could tap the A or B button. Yep. Um, yeah, man. That like the I think that I developed a crook in the last knuckle of my pointer finger on my right hand from button mashing. It's like a, how a lot of people got the Mario Party stigmata. Um, the, on it's the, a blister. In yeah. Mario yeah. Party stigmata. <laughs> <laughs> well, fighting games had a ton to do with the console wars, and it was all fun and games until Midway came along and dropped a bloody box in our hands with Mortal Kombat scribbled on it in red permanent marker. For the uninitiated... Mortal Kombat truly introduced excessive violence to video games, and the U.S. government, especially Congressman Joseph Lieberman, took that personally. Ah, another mm-hmm. villain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Remember earlier when I said CD games flew too close to the sun? Well, armed with the full motion video cutscenes from a relatively unknown game called Night Trap, a game that at least three of the four of us have played. That's right. Yep. And the bloody fatalities of Mortal Kombat. Old Joey Liebs said, regulate your shit or I will. Again, we're going to skip a bunch of details, but Nintendo, Sega, and some other folks came together to create the ESRB, which standardized a rating system for games. Working together certainly cooled off some of the war, but Sega still got their jab in. After the court cases, Nintendo released Mortal Kombat to the SNES, devoid of its blood and fatalities. Sega, on the other hand, simply hid the gore behind a secret code. This seemed to cement Sega as the edgier brand, 
and Nintendo as the family brand, which honestly, everybody seemed pretty cool with. Yeah. And that brings us to the year 1994, because the year 1993 is not important to this story, which is unfortunate for Sega, as it is the only year they truly outpaced Nintendo in sales. While Sega had begun to claim the North American market share, Nintendo's long-standing popularity in Japan kept the company free of debts that plagued Sega. In 1994, Sega of Japan decided to turn their focus to their new 32-bit console, the Sega Saturn. Sega of Japan realized they now had three consoles with current support, the Sega Genesis, the Sega CD, and now the Sega Saturn, and that they felt their development was stretched too thin. They decided to discontinue the Genesis and the CD to focus on the Saturn. This incredibly bold decision torpedoed the U.S. market where the Genesis was still wildly popular and keeping pace with the Super Nintendo. The true That's definitely a like, how could you have known? Yeah. True, yeah. Like truly how bad it would have been decision. But that that sucks. Like it, that's rough. <laughs> yeah, it's it is, man. It's and it's tough to look back on for sure. Mm-hmm. The true end of the console wars came in 1995 with the death of console wars tracking event CES. Well, it wasn't that CES was ending. It was that E3 was beginning and would be the new home for annual video game trade showing. With 1995's E3, a pesky old rival entered the fray for the first time. Sony had bastardized the SNES CD and created the Sony PlayStation. In a famous moment akin to the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, Tom Kalinske (laughs) debuted the U.S. version of the Sega Saturn at E3 and announced it would retail for $399. I'm going to ask you to show your work again on that one, Matt. That's... uh... Then the the casual drop of Versailles in here. Yeah. Get out yeah. of here, Matt. <laughs> I could say it the Pittsburgh way and say Versailles if that's better. That's uh, the, it's that's the Ohio way too. Yep, I was gonna say that's what we called our campsite in Ohio too. Then Sony Computer Entertainment. Uh, bleh, then Sony Computer Entertainment America President Steve Race walked on stage, said only the words two ninety nine. And walked off stage to thunderous applause. (laughs) Meanwhile, Nintendo had decided to skip the 32-bit generation to focus on their new 64-bit machine. And just like that, it was all over. Sony became the new guy to fight with, and Sega just couldn't hang. The Dreamcast was was the last home console made by Sega before they got out of the game in 2001. The PlayStation 2 came out and became the best-selling home console of all time. And like they are wont to do, Nintendo took their ball and went home, deciding they'd rather innovate family-friendly gaming than partake in the next war that was brewing. And that is all I have about the console wars of 83 to 95. I- um, a fun thing I want to throw in, and I, I don't think this, you know, this just kind of killed the Dreamcast quicker. I don't think the Dreamcast was going to hang with the PlayStation or the N64. But um, another reason the Dreamcast died was that Sega did not put DRM on their uh, Dreamcast discs. And they became, they were super easy to pirate. And then in the burgeoning days of like 
this modern internet to download and rip to a CD. You're 100% oh. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Interesting. It was very easy to pirate Dreamcast games. So, like, Sega watched um, the system sell and then no, almost no games comparatively sell because um, you could rip them off. You could rip them offline hmm. um, if you had an internet connection at the time. Man. Well, that really gets us to about 2001, which, you know, you've got the N64 in there, and then you've got the GameCube and the PlayStation 2, and then eventually Microsoft comes along. And originally, before I started researching all this, I was going to do kind of like a first console war, second console war, like a 1985 Secret Wars and a 2015 Secret Wars kind of situation. <laughs> this is great, man. You're doing great. <laughs> but I I got way too deep in the 83 to 95 era, and I didn't really have the time to look into the console wars of the second generation, which is actually the sixth generation of consoles. But I do want to take a quick moment just to talk about the console wars that we're probably all a little more familiar with, the one between Sony and Xbox or Sony and Microsoft. And I brought this up, and I'll, I'll say it now, my last little places for more information is this video called The Console Wars by some kid named Marco on YouTube. And I just clicked that video when I was doing research, and he started off by saying, well, the original console wars was between Nintendo and Sega, but that doesn't matter. And I was like, what do you mean? This one? And then he started talking about Sony and Xbox. And I was like, oh, shit, that's right. We did this again. So, yeah, um, I planted my flag firmly in Camp Nintendo from the beginning, and I have not yet left. I never really participated in the second generation of console wars, but I wanted to open the floor to you guys. This is also kind of the if you have final thoughts to share segment, share them here. Um, or if you have anything you want to talk about with, with console wars Two electric boogaloo, please do so, man, it, it, you hit the nail on the head, like all the talk of Sega being the edgier system. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, you again, like I had like a visceral, uh, memory of you going Sega. Like I, like <laughs> I forget what a game, what game it was I had that you'd load up and that's the way it would start. Um, yeah, I just I even as a kid being like, oh, that's the edgy system. Look at that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, first off, fantastic. Awesome. All of that was good. As far as the second round of this goes, I have always been a generation behind on PlayStation at best. Um, I got my original PlayStation very late and I got a PlayStation 2 very late. Um, I got an Xbox pretty early. So mm -hmm. I was as far as it goes, I've probably bought. I mean, I was buying I had Nintendo's way early. I've had like every iteration of a Nintendo except for um, I have not had a DS and I have not had a Wii U, but I've had every other Nintendo, but I've had a lot of Xboxes um, aside from my my one was where I stopped. But I've always been in like the Xbox or the Microsoft Sony war. I was always team Xbox. How many how many 360s did you trade in with the red <laughs> ring of death, Todd? So I did have to send my 360 in once. Um, I which this is really funny now because I I was explaining this to my partner the other day, and I was like, yeah, like a whole swath of of this console just had to be returned. She's like, well, why? 
And I was like, oh, because they were made poorly. And, <laughs> and she's like, well, didn't people hate that? I'm like, oh, yeah, they hated they it. Hated it. And oh, they what, hated it. And I'm like, it was just too good. Well, yeah, man. She, she's, she's like, well, what did the company do? I'm like, well, they had no other choice but to just accept them whole cloth and send them back to you. They just took so, a bath, that whole yeah. Red Ring era. I remember yeah. friends, like, they would, when they got the Red Ring, they would just buy the new one buy a new one, put the old one in the box and then take it back to GameStop and be like, it's not working in GameStop. Right. It'll be like, we know what you're doing, but Microsoft just said, take them. And like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, I specifically, so I, I got mine. Um, so a buddy from a broken family also, I think he got two <laughs> and I bought one off of him and I had had it for about a month or so and it just went red ring. And I remember calling them and they're like, yeah, put it in a box and send it to us. And I put it in a box with no padding whatsoever. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, fuck you. This box fits. And they paid for shipping. They did everything. They sent me a brand new one. Worked fine. Worked fine for years. Yep. But like, oh, my God, what a what a cultural touchstone. I'm pretty sure every single person I knew that had a 360 sent theirs back, which I mean, in my immediate circle was like eight it, to ten people yeah it wasn't a matter of if but when i yeah. think um they had they had tips for fixing it at home which involved <laughs> putting your xbox in the oven and then dropping it on the ground what uh yeah yeah um man. you put it in the oven to kind of loosen the solder and then you wrapped oh. it in a blanket and dropped it on the ground to try and get that the piece that was like heating out to like settle back in hmm. um they would try anything to not have to give you a brand yep. new Xbox. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. in the end, you're still like, well, I've got an Xbox that's yep. coming your way. Now my oven smells like Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> it smells like toasted computer chips. Oh, my God. Um, I I had the, Playsta the, the PlayStation in that round. And I was so, I felt like I was missing out on the Nintendo stuff so badly. I was like dead set on getting a GameCube. Which then made me the kid going, no, guys, the GameCube's just as good, I swear. Yeah. Um, I loved my GameCube. I love I love the GameCube. It's it's great. Uh, but, like, the PS2 was undeniable at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then yeah. I got, I've been Nintendo since, and I got, like, late PS3, PS4, um, like, secondhand. But, like, I've, I've, I've been a Nintendo boy since, since. I would yeah. guess that that the people I mean, and this might this is at least my experience. Couch co-op was such a huge part of my especially yes. high school. Yep. I mean, my high school experience was Smash Bros was, um, you know, Fantasy Star Online was was Legend of Zelda Four Swords was Halo Halo two yeah, and three Crystal was, Chronicles was my high school. Like, but like that's all those had. all those four player couch co-op games for GameCube were just the things we did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know a lot of people who, like, the GameCube was just a Super Smash Bros. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. they had uh, might have had other games for it, but, like, it only came out to play Super Smash Bros. Right. Um, and then um, Nintendo got their, got their foot back in the wars by releasing <laughs> the Wii, which outsold both the PS3 and Xbox 360 yeah, combined. Yeah, they, they did, but that... I think the Wii, it's the Wii set the precedent that 
okay, the Nintendo console is always going to be markedly different. Yes. Right. Yeah. It is going to be visually, graphically inferior. Because yep. the GameCube, it was always like, well, the GameCube's not HD, but neither is yeah. these. It's like, it's kind of keeping up. But like the Wii was like the, a foot in the ground. Like Screw we're not that. going to, we're not yeah. doing HD. We're not doing good online. We're just right. doing fun gimmicks. So that set the scene. Like you can do an, you're going to do a Nintendo console and then one of the real consoles. Yeah. <laughs> um, I that was to set up my other fun fact from the time is that the Nintendo DS outsold all three outsold all three of them combined. Um, the Nintendo mm. DS is like Nintendo's best selling system ever. It's the best-selling game system of all time. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's wild. so weird how that's the one, just yeah. because of Brain Age. Yeah, I, I mean, Brain <laughs> Age had a lot to do with it. Yeah. There, I mean, the Nintendogs. I think Nintendogs had a lot to do with it. It, it. I don't. I don't need to get a high horse on the DS, but I think it is. It is the impetus of perfect design in I love gaming. The, I love it's, the it's DS. Very, yeah, not, like I'm it, being it, facetious. Yeah. Uh, I won't Andrew? repeat. Yeah, I won't repeat much what the other guys said. My experience is similar. I I do. I said earlier that I was on the front lines of the the desert storm of the console wars, <laughs> and by that I mean you know like the kid at school being like, "No, guys, the GameCube has Resident Evil Four. Right? Like, yeah. There's also <laughs> and have you ever played uh, Eternal Darkness? Call of Duty is coming in two yeah. months. I swear. Yeah. I also low-key bought a ps2 <laughs> like six months after it came out because how else was i going to play final fantasy 10 <laughs> and then sometimes watch dvds yeah and then sometimes yeah. watch dvds because i couldn't afford a dvd player um and then since that time i've been mostly playstation but also had an xbox 360 because everybody did in college the ps2 i would also put uh, like similar to the ds as like near perfect design for the yep. time the ps2 was mm-hmm. an amazing an system. incredible console yeah, yeah. Well, that I think wraps it up. If you are interested in more information specifically on the 1983 to 1995 console wars, a couple recommendations for you. Thing number one, I've talked about it already. Please check out a book entitled Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined a Generation. It's by Blake J. Harris, was released in 2014, is very good, I say, as someone who hasn't finished reading it, but has started. (laughs) I also found out today after I had given up on reading the book, but started researching for this, they turned that whole movie into a documentary in 2020. It's available on Paramount Plus. um, If you are a freak with Paramount Plus like me. Last but not least, I have this video entitled The Great Console War, the story of Sega versus Nintendo parentheses complete series by a channel called Double Dog on YouTube. I watched that this afternoon. It's two hours. It's very good covers some things that the book doesn't cover might get covered in the doc don't know haven't seen it uh and then that other video i mentioned earlier about the later era console wars i will be sure to link all of that in the show notes and that is all i have to say about the console wars for now so i think i'll go ahead and say thanks for listening to debate this you can follow along with the arguments on twitter facebook and instagram at debate this cast or on our website at debatethiscast.com. If you're interested in more Debate This content this year, considering checking out our YouTube channel, at Debate This Cast. There you'll find our entire episode backlog and also an archive of past streams. For example, the playthrough of Doki Doki Literature Club that we recently did as a thank you to our listeners who left reviews on Spotify and other podcast apps, which you can also do 
If you want us to love you a little extra, leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. Until next time, I'm Matt Cole. I'm Andrew. Yuji Naka built this by himself in a cave <laughs> with a box of scraps. Henderson. I'm Todd. Sega does what my absent father don't. Thomas. <laughs> uh, and I'm Kyle. I prong. You prong. He, she, me prong. Prongology. The study of prong. It's first grade, Matt. Harper. And we're saying thanks for debating with us. And if you think we're wrong, you can come fight us behind the swing sets, nerds.